Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 412 of Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. My name is Sean Delaney. I'm a teacher educator and primary teacher, and my book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is now available as an audiobook on Audible and on other audio platforms. You can contact me by email by writing to Inside Education Podcast at yahoo.com, and my Twitter handle is at InsideEd. When you ask your students to do a project or assignment, you most likely expect them to do original work, and you assume that what they submit is an honest effort produced by them. However, nowadays, the internet has made the temptation to copy the work of others so much easier than we could have imagined. No one is immune to the temptation to cheat, from primary students copying and pasting from websites, to post-primary students paraphrasing the work of others, to university students sourcing work in essay mills, and to graduate students succumbing to predatory publishing. What is at stake here is the idea of academic integrity, and it threatens many of the principles we take for granted at all levels of the education system. To discuss such matters, I am delighted to be joined by a professor who has given a lot of thought to the topic. Her name is Diane Pecorari, who is a professor in the Department of English at the City University of Hong Kong. She teaches courses in linguistics, academic writing and professional communication. She helps university lecturers learn how to promote students' writing skills and how to work against plagiarism. You'll like this week's podcast if you are interested in preserving academic integrity as part of the education process at any level of education. Diane will describe, but not name, the teacher who had a significant impact on her. Someone who didn't get good evaluations by students, but who shaped Diane's approach to her work ever since. She explains, too, why an educated person should have several strings to their bow. I spoke to Professor Pecorari recently over Zoom and I began our conversation by asking her how she defines plagiarism. There are, in my understanding, four components. So plagiarism involves a relationship between two texts. They're similar in some way. And then the reason they're similar is because one isn't original. The writer of one has borrowed something from the other. Now, this business of borrowing from texts that have come before is really common. It's called intertextuality, and it's a big part of language use. But if we're looking at plagiarism, then we're looking at a form of intertextuality that is illegitimate or inappropriate. So, for example, if I, if I quote and use quotation marks and give a citation, that's not plagiarism. So some plagiarism in some way is illegitimate and hides its relationships with other texts. And then finally, I I would argue, I have argued, that plagiarism involves some sort of deception. The problematic intertextuality is not accidental. The writer knowingly misused an earlier text and tried to conceal it. Now, not everyone would agree with that last point. Some people talk about accidental plagiarism. I I can argue the point, but at the end of the day, I think it's not terribly relevant to be too concerned about whether accidental plagiarism is or is not plagiarism. Uh, I think the important thing is to recognize that there there are two separate phenomena going on. There's a form of cheating, and then there's something that can happen because the student doesn't know better. And whether you call both of those things plagiarism or not, they're both there, but they have different causes. It's interesting there that you mentioned that the student doesn't know better because is plagiarism something that's always associated with students or can it take place outside uh, an education setting? Of of course it it can, absolutely. Um, So I, I think I probably said student because that's that's what my research has primarily been on. But of course, plagiarism is a phenomenon that, that, that comes up in all kinds of settings. Certainly academics do it, um, journalists, songwriters, you name it. You're quite strong on the fact that it's not accidental, but say, I know that students will sometimes say, well, you know, I was taking notes when I was reading a text 
and I wasn't sure what was what were my own thoughts and what were what was the text you know from the the other source I was reading. And by the time I went to write the essay, I, I, I couldn't separate them. So it kind of was accidental. Right, ab- absolutely. That that's that's one way that there can be um, a sort of accidental plagiarism. There's um, you know lots of evidence that that students sort of actually think that borrowing chunks of language can can be a, a good, a viable, a legitimate strategy. My my point simply is that I don't I don't think personally that we ought to call that plagiarism. I think I, I think plagiarism is most clearly understood as a transgressive deceptive act. And then we have to call those other things something else. That's making a mistake. That's getting it wrong. So that's why I say that that fourth criterion for plagiarism is a bit contentious. Um, some people say plagiarism is always deceptive. Some people say there's such a thing as accidental plagiarism. I would prefer to call the accidental kind something else um, because otherwise we're, we're kind of conflating two very different acts under one label. And I think that's messy. I think it has negative consequences in that we can kind of jump from diagnosing the student mistake, the the accidentally, um, you know, copying out of your notes and forgetting the quotation marks, and then go from that to a disciplinary procedure that says, if you plagiarize, you have to be punished. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the reason people are reluctant to go with your final criterion, which is the accidental, non-accidental one, is that somebody can retrospectively say, oh, well, it was accidental. So they, yes. may, they may plagiarize and then say, oh, well, it was accidental and, and then justify it subsequently. So how would you separate those kinds of cases if you are going to say that it, that, that it doesn't apply to accidental plagiarism? I mean, that, that is a very good point, of, of course. Um, we, you know, we kind of have the principle that ignorance of the law is no excuse. And, and that's, a, that's another sort of way of taking the, it was an accident defense out of, out of the equation. We certainly can't have any regulatory system that's wide open to anybody coming along after the fact and saying, oh, I didn't mean to. And there aren't any penalties, there aren't any consequences. At, at the same time, we do know that sometimes it really is an accident. We, I think we, all of us who are teachers have seen students that we believe in our heart of hearts really were confused about what they were supposed to be doing, trying their hardest, not trying to cheat us. So then, then the question becomes one of judgment in the event, right? And it's, you know, intent is the, the hardest thing in the world to, to, to prove. We can't take the tops of people's heads off and look inside and see whether they really meant to do it or whether they're telling us the truth when they say they didn't. But that doesn't mean that it's not important to make that distinction. And at some point we can say, we have to say to people, well, you, you know, you, you're going to have to take responsibility for your actions. However, I think it's important that we assign the right kind of responsibility. So that's why I emphasize a pedagogical response to plagiarism. So deception deserves to be punished. Mistakes don't deserve to be rewarded, right? So that's why I think it's really important that we think about using sources properly as something that we positively try to teach and encourage our students to do. And then um, if we, we think there's you know, been an accident, we can say, I accept your explanation, but it's an assessment criterion for this assignment that you are transparent about the way you use your sources. You didn't do that. I can't, I can't pass you on this assessment because you haven't met the learning criteria. Now that's that might you know wind up being the the same thing. You, you you know if the penalty for plagiarism is a failing grade on the assignment, and the penalty for a mistake is that you can't get a passing grade on the assignment. The outcomes may be the same, but there's all the difference in the world between punishing, which is what we do when people break the rules, and coaching and supporting 
which is what we do when our students haven't yet learned to achieve the intended learning outcomes. I really like that idea of a pedagogical response to plagiarism and, you know, coaching and supporting. That, 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 that it's not just a, pe uh, a penalty approach. I, I think it's important. And that again, you know, gets back to why it's so important to, to distinguish these, these two categories of acts, the, you know, the deceptive, intentional and, and the unintentional. How widespread is plagiarism in higher education settings? Well, the short answer to that is that nobody knows. Right. If we take that narrower definition, um, plagiarism as a form of cheating, it's something that people try to hide. The statistics we have reflect how often it's detected and reported. And of course, the relationship between detected and reported events and all events is subject to all kinds of question. If we think that plagiarism is a broader concept, and that it includes things that students do because they don't know better, then again, we don't really have numbers, but it is very widespread indeed. Academic writing is a skill, and like any skill, when we're learning it, we get it wrong more often than we get it right. And, and what causes plagiarism then? Is it, is it just a, a learning process or is, it, is, there, is there more behind it? Well, again, I, I, I think we need to make this distinction between the plagiarism that is a kind of cheating and plagiarism that may have different causes. Causes are different. Students cheat, whether it's plagiarism, taking a cheat sheet into an exam, whatever. Students cheat when they feel that it's the best, most viable course of action. That might be because they're, they're lazy or they've planned their time badly and the deadline creeps up on them. Often it's because they feel inadequate to the challenge facing them. There have been two relatively recent and hugely important changes to higher education that have probably increased the number of students who feel inadequate to the challenges of writing their own assessment work. One is the expansion of higher education. The, the students reaching tertiary education now are a much more diverse lot than they used to be. And that is definitely to be celebrated. Making university accessible is a good thing, but it does mean that our tertiary institutions have a lot of students who are the first in their families to go to university, who come from homes without a lot of books in them. And, you know, again, fantastic that they get the opportunity, but they don't have the same cultural capital to draw on. The going is harder for them. And we're increasingly educating students through the medium of a language which is not their own, um, increasingly English. So we have the phenomenon of international student mobility, which has grown rapidly since the end of the Second World War. And we have the more recent phenomenon of English medium instruction with universities around the world starting to offer courses and degree programs in English, even though that's not the majority language of the society. And it's just harder to do something in a second language. So both of those factors have created a situation in which the students entering higher education are probably less able to write an essay in English than the smaller university educated cohort was 50 years ago. And it's hardly surprising when they struggle, some of them will work, look for shortcuts. So those are some of the causes of plagiarism as a form of cheating. But if we, if we interpret plagiarism more broadly and we say, well, you know, plagiarism is any time you don't use your sources in an open, transparent and appropriate way, then a lot of that is down to knowing how sources are meant to be used in academic writing. And a lot of it is down to having or feeling that you have your own forms of expression. So academic language is not something that people grow up speaking. Um, so one of the causes of that broader form of plagiarism is students feeling that they don't have the words themselves. 
Given those causes then, how can plagiarism be prevented? With plagiarism, like any form of cheating, it's important to have rules in place and to have detection mechanisms and to have punishments as a kind of disincentive. And I think most educational institutions do that. Um, as I, I indicated a moment ago, it's just a fact, um, it's human nature that the, 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 the more people feel a need to cheat or behave in other dishonest ways, the more dishonesty you're going to get. So universities can prevent plagiarism by not admitting students who are not proficient in the language of instruction, by not admitting students without a sufficient academic preparation to study the subject they're going to study. Um, this is not to say that, that students who feel disadvantaged are right to cheat, but it is inevitable that a certain proportion of students in that position will take, take that route. So prevention then involves having a good regulatory structure, a good set of rules and procedures. It involves trying not to put people in a place where they're going to be strongly motivated to cheat. That, that other kind of, of plagiarism, the one that I don't, I don't really want to call plagiarism, the way we fix that is not with prohibitions. Prohibitions don't work. The way we fix it is by giving students the skills that they need. So if they're unsure how to work a quotation in and signal that it's a quotation, we teach them about that. If they don't feel like they have their own academic language and so they, they want to draw on the things that they're reading as a resource, we need to help them develop their own voices as writers. And is that kind of developing their own voices as writers and learning how to integrate sources into their writing, is that something that should happen at university level? Should it be a pre-university course or should it be a secondary school responsibility or is it across all of these? Yeah, I, I think to the greatest extent possible, it ought to be um, starting as, as early as possible. Writing is a skill. And like any skill, it takes time to develop. The, the, there's, there's no way to, to put all that learning into a student's head in one concentrated dose. Like any skill, they have to have opportunities to absorb a little bit, practice, get feedback, refine the craft. So extending that kind of instruction over a longer period of time is beneficial. I'd, I'd like to be clear though, I, while I do think it's very important to teach things like the mechanics of signaling that language comes from a source, what does and doesn't constitute an acceptable paraphrase, I don't think that the, the biggest cause of textual plagiarism is that lack of knowledge about citation. I think that a bigger factor is that sense of not having my own supply of academic language. So solving that problem is really about teaching writing skills. One of the resources or supports that higher education institutions use to detect plagiarism is software, anti-plagiarism software. How effective is that software? Not very, is the short answer. I, I suppose when you say anti-plagiarism software, you mean products like Turnitin or Urkund or, well, there are very many different products okay. like that. Um, so I'll speak generally rather about than about any one product. Yeah. And a, a better name for them is text matching software because that's all they do. They They don't identify plagiarism. They just match strings of characters that are identical in two texts. And they are 
not necessarily very good tools. They give false positives. They give false negatives. Now, the really problematic aspect about them is how they're used. If, if you read the fine print in the user manual, it, it always inevitably says, you know, look, all we're doing is measuring this, this one little thing, which is the number of matching strings in a text that we can match to somewhere else. But in practice, teachers think and expect and hope that these tools will be a silver bullet that they will be able to look at the number on the report and understand whether their students have plagiarized or not. And that's simply not the case. So, so the fact that they're used as if there were no false positives and there were no false negatives, that's hugely problematic. It's problematic when students are wrongly accused, when there has been a false positive. I would argue that it's potentially even more problematic when there are false negatives because students are looking for the clues about what they're supposed to be doing. Students also have a lot of faith in these products. And if they hand in something that isn't, that has been copied and hasn't, isn't picked up, a lot of students take away the message from that. Well, you know, this is okay. Um, I, I, I changed a few synonyms and the text matching software didn't pick it up. So that must mean that if you change a few synonyms, that's okay, right? I'm, I'm, I'm doing this the right way. Well, that's a dangerous lesson. Are there particular penalties for plagiarism that higher education institutions apply that, that are, are, are successful? You know, like, like what, what ones seem to work and what ones maybe don't work? My experience, and this is not something that I, I've studied systematically, um, so I'm, I'm answering somewhat impressionistically. My experience would be that typical penalties are lowering a grade on an assessment, possibly to zero, lowering a grade for the course. In extreme cases, perhaps suspension, um, perhaps even exclusion. There have been a, a, a number of high-profile cases where doctoral degrees have been revoked, rescinded after plagiarism was discovered. Um, but, but typically we're talking about you know, lowering grades or suspension. Those penalties are, are probably effective, and I don't think they have to be massive swinging penalties to have a deterrent effect. But it's important to remember that penalties can only do that. They can only have a deterrent effect against students who are aware that what they're doing is plagiarism and are trying to cheat. Penalties can do absolutely nothing to make students avoid textual plagiarism if the students aren't aware that that's what they're doing. Which comes back to the importance of a pedagogical response. Absolutely. You've also written about patch writing. What is patch writing? Patch writing is one of the nicest, most intuitive metaphors that I've come across. Um, it was coined by Rebecca Howard, who describes it as you know, something akin to the way a patchwork quilt is produced, where the writers, or where, where bits of fabric, a bit of fabric of this kind and a bit of fabric of a different kind are stitched together. So you have at the end something that is made up almost entirely of recycled bits, but the thing itself is brand new and original in the form it's in now. Um, so she used that phrase to describe writers who take a sentence from here, a sentence from there, and then they stitch them together and maybe change a few words or change the order of items in a list, that kind of thing. Can you say a little bit about essay mills? Yeah, they're the real problem. Um, if, if, if teachers think that plagiarism is a problem, then essay mills, and in particular contract cheating, um, that's just a problem of a whole different order of magnitude. So once upon a time, essay mills um, sold 
pre-written essays that you know, could potentially find their way on, into the text matching software. Uh, might be a little bit hard um, for those products to get past paywalls, but a good chance that that could be detected. Increasingly, what we're seeing is essay mills running contract cheating operations where students send in the, the terms of the assessment that they've been given and somebody else writes an assignment for that. And that is extremely hard to detect. And yeah, because I think probably the, con the term contract cheating might even be new to, to some listeners. And, and it's all part of trying to, to, to stop students being tempted by approaching them is all part of academic integrity. And, yeah. and so, so if they're hard to detect them, like, like, like it, it seems like a huge threat to, to academic integrity and to the future of universities. If, yes. if, if I need to do an assignment, but I'm going to pay somebody in a low-wage country to do it for me, and maybe not in a low-wage country, but I'm going to pay somebody to do it for me, that's, um, that's a huge problem. It's, it's a massive problem. It is virtually impossible to detect. Um, there, are, there are some efforts underway to um, use a similar approach to, to, well, to sort of use an automated analysis that might um, sort of produce a, a, a thumbprint, a fingerprint of the student's own voice so that it might be possible to alert a teacher to the fact that this particular assignment is written in a very different voice than than the student's previous work, but but that's that's hugely problematic. That's not a a solution that's going to be ready anytime soon, or I should think is going to be highly effective. So it, it is it is just a massive problem, and I one of the approaches that universities are having most success with in, in combating it is simply making students aware of the risks. And that goes a little bit back to, you know, the penalties, what kinds of punishments are appropriate, but there are other risks as well. So some of the contract cheating agencies, in, fa in effect, blackmail students, they'll write an assignment and they'll come back and ask for more money not to report the student. Some of them just take the money and don't produce any work. It's a, some of them bill themselves as um, sort of note-taking services. Um, we, we have gathered a bank of information about your course and sort of lure students in so that the students aren't really aware of what they're signing up for. Um, making them aware of that in advance appears to be the, the best way of, of counteracting that that we have at the moment. You also write about predatory publishing. I wonder, could you say a little bit about what, what exactly that is? Right. So predatory publishing is defined by the Committee on Publication Ethics as publication outlets, research journals, which have no effective quality control mechanisms and which exist for the purpose of making a profit. And those two factors have to be taken into account together. Most publishers are, are for-profit organizations. Making a profit in and of itself isn't the problem. We certainly also know that there are some low-quality journals or books in the world. That, that doesn't make a publication predatory. It's the combination of, of those two. It's setting profit above quality, prioritizing, making decisions, allowing things to be published in order to generate a profit, even though they don't reach a good quality standard. More recently, we've seen the development of predatory conferences, which operate in a similar way. They exist to make a profit. They have no quality control mechanisms. And as a result, the output that's presented there is of a very low quality generally. And I mean, one of the ways that quality is maintained in conventional journals and in, in strong journals is this idea of peer review, where you yes. submit your article that you want to publish to 
some randomly selected peers are, who are expert in that area and who will kind of say, yes, this is worth publishing or this is not worth publishing for the following reasons. And some of the journals in the predatory publishing area, they sound very credible. So how do you know that an article that you're reading is a legitimate one? In other words, that it has been through this quality peer-reviewed process um, and not just one that somebody has paid to be submitted and that the quality doesn't really matter? There are, there are some fairly well-known criteria that are associated with predatory journals or with predatory conferences. There's a, a wonderful website called um, Think, Check, Submit that, that lists some of the criteria. I think what I would advise young scholars and experienced scholars to do is think about what you know about the journal. Do the people who you res- whose work you respect publish in it? Are the names on the editorial board, are they, are they names that you know and respect? Why do you want to publish your work here? One of the real red flags is a publication fee, although there are some legitimate open access journals that charge publication fees, but there's the proportionality of the publication fee. And there's what you find out about the peer review process. So a lot of predatory outlets promise that your article will be accepted very, very quickly. You know, if they're they're saying most articles are accepted within two weeks, they're not doing serious peer review. So there are are some signs. And the um, Think Check Submit website is a, a, a good repository for quite a lot of the reliable signs. And what about a reader of these? publications are, are they are they ever actually published these these journals I mean presumably they are published so how can a reader you know who say for example wants to read about you know pedagogy or who wants to read a, a scientific article or a, a quality article about you know whatever topic it is whether it's engineering or health how can they know how can they, get, they have confidence that they're actually reading a legitimate journal it, it can be difficult um, at at times um, it can be particularly difficult now that it, it's so easy to find articles extracted from the journal they, they were published on. There are sites like Academia and ResearchGate where the article is, you know, can be found and downloaded and it's decontextualized from its original publication. However, I think the same quality indicators, if you look at the editorial board of a journal and you see the names of people who are well respected in the field, then probably it's a quality journal. If you look at the editorial board and you see no names that you've ever heard of before, it might be a perfectly legitimate journal, but there it certainly doesn't have that hallmark of sort of authority and credibility behind it. So take it with a grain of salt. Look at who is publishing there. Are they respected authors? If so, then there's probably some kind of quality peer review process going on. And can I ask, how did you get interested in this whole area of academic integrity, you know, plagiarism and predatory publishing and so on? A very long time ago in my very first university teaching job, this was at Ohio State, um, in our training for this position as a graduate teaching assistant, one of the the sort of pieces of information or advice that was offered to us was, you may be finding quite a bit of work that looks like plagiarism, and you need to have a conversation with the student because it may not be plagiarism in the sense that we usually understand it. Sure enough, it turned out exactly that way. The very first set of writing assignments I took in, I found myself reading something that I was sure had been copied from a published source. And I asked the student about it. I said, this was an an assignment that we constructed to give them something to write about that would not require research. So we could work on the writing, not on the referencing 
um, skills in that particular assignment. So in principle, they shouldn't have been using any sources and they knew it. And I, I spoke to the student and I said, so tell me, did you use any sources for this assignment? And he answers, why, yes, I, I used this brochure from my country's tourist board. Would you like me to show it to you? It was just absolutely obvious that this, this student was willing to be so forthcoming about what he'd done. There was absolutely no intention to, to cheat me or deceive me. And I just thought this was so interesting, having grown up in a school culture where you don't copy is just one of the first things you learn and it was banged into our head and repeated on a weekly basis probably. I thought that was a really interesting phenomenon and I wanted to understand why does this happen? And that's why I said about investigating plagiarism. And at that point, I didn't really see it as investigating academic integrity because what I was primarily interested in investigating is the bit that isn't to do with integrity. It's to do with not understanding. Why, why does this happen? Why are there students who really genuinely don't know what they're supposed to do? But yes, one thing leads to another and that expanded into an interest in academic integrity a bit more broadly. And now you are a professor in English for academic purposes. What, what is meant by the term English for academic purposes? Right, so it's the, the way that we use language, that we use English in academic settings. So um, I, I guess everybody is familiar with the idea that academics use a lot of long $10 words. Um, that's one aspect of English for academic purposes. The, the technical terms or just, you know, the longer generic academic vocabulary that we use in some academic disciplines, you, there, there are certain textual genres that are particularly important that students need to be taught how to use and how to produce perhaps for their future lives. So English for academic purposes is the field that, that investigates how, how English is used in academic settings. So it's a much more formal approach than, say, just, uh, you know, learning English as a foreign language or English as a second language where, you know, you're, you're literally just learning it to communicate with somebody that you meet on the street or in a shop or something like that. Right. It's a, it's a more specific uh, approach to a, a more specific set of needs. Um, if, you're, if you're learning language generally, as you say, it might be it might be to be able to buy something in a shop or you know, talk to the waiter when you're in a restaurant on holiday. Those are very generic um, everyday needs. English for academic purposes is about helping students gain the skills that they need in order to have good preconditions for success at university. So what kind of things would you cover then on a, an English for academic purposes course? Academic writing is a lot of it. Um, and it might be something it, as generic as how, how to write an argumentative essay, which is a, a kind of text that, that students in a lot of subject areas will be asked to do in a lot of courses. It might be English for specific academic purposes. It might be teaching students in a in a business English course, how to write a section of a corporate annual report or how to engage in a negotiation. In the field of English for academic purposes, what are the current interesting areas of research or concerns in that, in that field? A lot of emphasis is on academic writing. Uh, possibly we concentrate too much on academic writing and not enough on spoken language and academic contexts, but that, that's been the tradition. So part of it is understanding what the genres are, identifying the genres that are important for students in different parts of the university, understanding how those genres are composed. So an experienced writer in that field will have an intuitive sense of what makes a good corporate annual report or what makes a good argumentative essay. So doing a more structural analysis of them lets us write the, the recipe for students, the instruction manual. Um, here, here's, here's how you do it. This is what a text in your field usually looks like. So you might want to have that awareness of what a typical text in the genre looks like when you're writing your own. There's a certain amount of work I've done some myself on academic vocabulary. So trying to identify those words that 
we use at university that students need to have access to when they get to university that maybe they didn't need up until this point. Dan, we're coming near the end, so I wanted to ask you just some general questions about education now for, uh, to, to, to finish up. And the first one is, what is school for or what are schools for? We could say that schools are for teaching in a structured way the things that people need to know to get through life or perhaps the things that people need to know to have a richer life, a more fulfilling life than they would without them. Um, and that certainly means a whole lot of life skills, not just book learning. Uh, certainly, I think in the lower grades, the, the, the really important learning is about getting along with other people and being, being part of a community that, that isn't your family. We could say that schools are for preparing people for successful lives. I think we we tend to believe as as individuals, as parents, as a society, we tend to believe that the more education, the further people will go. I think that belief, while while undoubtedly true to some extent, um, is is something that we find it easy to overestimate. We've decided, for example, in, in Europe as a society to try and send 50% of each generation to university, at least to, to try some university. That because we can see that there's a clear correlation between university education and things like income and well-being. But it's not the piece of paper that confers the economic and well-being benefits. It's the actual education. So I think sometimes we put the cart before the horse and, and kind of think that, that school is there to provide these economic benefits that are really benefits of education, not school. Okay, thank you. And mm -hmm. a teacher who had a significant impact on you? There have, there have been so many. I have been so very fortunate to have had a, a very large number of excellent teachers. Um, the, the, the one who comes to mind, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to name for, for reasons that may become clear, but it was a university professor when I was doing my master's degree who was just incredibly clear and demanding and had the, the, the most sort of detailed possible instructions for our academic work and just demanded that every aspect of what we were expected to do was done really, really rigorously. This is a teacher who didn't necessarily get the highest course evaluations and certainly did get a whole lot of grumbling, right? This was the teacher, the professor that we we all moaned about and, and you know, grumbled about over coffee and over beers. But that expectation of rigor is something that has stayed with me. And I'm very grateful now that somebody made those demands on me and kind of made the case that doing rigorous work is important. He treated you like a scholar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your vision of an educated person? I think an educated person is a broad person, um, somebody who has more than one string to their bow. And I think a somewhat unfortunate tendency that many academics have is to be just the opposite. We spend so many years studying the same thing um, 
that we we get a bit narrow. Now, you have to go narrow if you're going to go deep. But you know, again, I think we I think we need more than one string to our bow. So I think we need an educated person needs to have the thing that they know a lot about, and then they have to know a little bit about a whole lot of things. So what other strings do you have to your bow? <laughs> um, I mean, even within my research area, I, I, I guess I, I have, I have gone broad because I have the, I have so sort of the educational linguistics, the English for academic purposes, the plagiarism, the, the predatory publishing. So, and this is both a good thing and a bad thing. But I have, I've, I've always found it very easy to be interested in almost anything whatsoever. And in fact, one of the reasons that I really enjoy my work in English for academic purposes is that it permits a, a, a degree of um, eavesdropping on what other colleagues in the university are doing. So, you know, as I was describing, we need to, to be able to help tell our students, well, here's how you write a good text in your discipline. And that means that we have to find out what's going on in those disciplines. So for instance, right now I'm, I'm working with a couple of colleagues in the School of Veterinary Medicine um, on, on just that question, helping, helping their students learn how to do the, the work they need to do. So that means learning a little bit about the field. So it means, um, yeah, as I say, eavesdropping on my colleagues in the university. And that's a lot of fun. Who or what inspires you? There are a lot of, a lot of things I could say in answer to that question. Um, but one thing that comes immediately to mind is my city. Hong Kong is the most incredible, multilingual, multicultural city. It's a city of hardworking, capable, entrepreneurial people. It's big, it's buzzy, it's gritty, it's energetic, efficient, resilient, creative. It took the colonial experience and the very hard knocks of the occupation during the Second World War and became strong and wise on the back of them. Um, so that's a that's a great source of inspiration. And then I think I would want to say my colleagues, uh, particularly over these last two years, every educational institution in the world has had an odd year this past year. Hong Kong got an early trial run because of the social unrest in the second half of 2019. And in the face of so many obstacles, my colleagues have worked so hard to give their students the best possible educational experience. This has truly been dedication in the face of adversity. So they're a source of inspiration. Is Hong Kong your home city or is it an adopted city? Because you said you studied in it, uh, Yes, I, I'm a very recent transplant. I've been here for four years. Have you a favorite writer, book or blog about education? One of, one of the books that, that I, I found incredibly influential and find myself returning to again and again is Tony Becker's Academic Tribes and Territories. Uh, it's um, an, an anthropological exploration of the university's different disciplines, treating them almost as different cultures, uh, which in many ways I guess they are. And that's not only been a, a, it's a it's a good it's a good read um it's richly informative it's helped me enormously understand my colleagues perspectives the final question diane is what from your own primary or secondary or elementary or middle or high school education informs your practice in education today you know, thinking about that, the, 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 the really the strongest contrast is with primary education, right? And it would be sort of easy to say, well, well, not so much because I, I teach grown-ups, not small children and so on. But one of the, the really clear memories from primary school for me was how very sort of methodical, clear, patient my teachers were. And I think that's something that we all need. I, I think whatever, whatever your age, whatever you're studying at whatever level, 
you go into that study as somebody who doesn't know much and needs to take themselves into, into a whole new world. And I think that that primary school, those primary school teacher characteristics of being slow, methodical, patient, explaining things clearly, repeating things um, because some people will have missed them the first time. I think those are characteristics that students at any level need some degree of. And that observation on the transfer of teaching skills across all levels of education was made by Professor Diane Pecorari of the City University of Hong Kong, who spoke to me recently on Zoom. You can find resources related to this podcast in the show notes for the episode. You can listen back to this podcast or hundreds of others by going to my website seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. You can get in touch with me via Twitter where I use the handle at InsideEd or through email by writing to InsideEducationPodcast at yahoo.com. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, was published by Routledge and an audio version of it is now available on most audiobook platforms. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney signing off. Thank you for listening.